My name is Matt Palladian. I am part of the Grace Community Church youth staff. I have been for uh, about 12 years. I also serve as a lay elder at Grace Community Church. Um, we, we try to have a lay elder partner with every ministry that we have going on on campus. And so I'm kind of the conduit between the elder board uh, and our youth ministry, our, student, our high school youth ministry program, uh, which is just a tremendous blessing uh, in my life. My wife Jenny and I have been volunteering with youth ministry at Grace for 12 years, as I said, but we actually met doing youth ministry 20 years ago. And it was one of those classic one-sided summer camp romances. She was the counselor for the girls' cabin, and I was the counselor for the guys' cabin, and she didn't realize I existed, and I knew she was the one for me. And five years later, count them, five for single staff, perseverance. Five years later, she, I think then she learned my name. It, it took a while. Um, so if you visited the ladies' panel um, earlier in the first session, uh, she was part of that. Um, and really it is a partnership um, because I'm enabled to do this ministry because her small group are our three young children. And she uh, is with them on Wednesday nights so I can be part of this because you know that this is a, a taxing ministry. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Why do we do this? What's the wisdom of spending countless hours with students who seem to have different priorities and uh, at one point are crying and emotional and need a hug and the other point are standoffish and wonder why you're standing in their group and everything in between. And uh, youth ministry, I think, is a part of what we've created in over the last century or so within the church that really dedicates itself to serving the youth that our churches bring. And we're going to explore a little bit about where did that come from? Because if we have that foundation and understanding of where that came from, it, it gives us a better understanding of what our goal is. Um, so what do you do when you're working on a student for years and years and you just don't see salvation? How do you pray for a student that seems to be so far from the gospel? How do you pray for a student who uh, says they're, they're saved and there is no fruit? What are you supposed to say to them? Those sorts of things. All of that we can talk about and I think we'll address. Um, but first, let's, let's t end this day three state of mind where you're kind of looking for that, why am I doing this? Uh, let's talk about why we're doing this. So let's start, we won't spend too much time here, but let's start in Acts 2. So we know the, the book of Acts is uh, a chronology, really, of events of the early church. Uh, and uh, since it's a chronology, Acts 2 is kind of the earliest notes we get about the church. Um, uh, and... Um, and there's a, a couple of things that we can learn about the early church that resonate even today. And I want to clarify that this, the, what I'm going to address now has become a bit of a debated topic in even evangelical circles or um, conservative Christian circles. Um, and there's a debate about the place of a youth group uh, in, in the church. Why does a youth group exist that didn't exist in really the other 1,900 years 
of the church. What, what is that all about? Um, and it, should it be? And is youth ministry in the Bible? And the short answer is no. The youth ministry is not explicitly called out in the Bible. Um, it doesn't, the Bible doesn't differentiate between groups within the church, except for orphans and widows. It's really the only group within a ch- the church that is differentiated, and then leadership. Uh, everything else is really the church uh, when, it, when it's referred to even in the book of Acts. So um, and why is that? Well, that's because the purpose of the church does not change based on demographics. The purpose of a youth ministry program, a children's ministry program, or an adult ministry program, or the general assembly of people in the church does not change. Its aim is always the same. So Acts 2, we'll look at verse 41. Most of you know this one. Uh, So 41 and 42 of Acts 2 So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they've devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And the awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. It's the aim of the church. It was in Acts 2, and it continues to be in 2018. This is the aim of the church. This is why the church assembles. And let's remember that verse 41 is really important. The group of people who are assembling are those who received the word, were baptized, and were to add that day. So when it comes to the church... Who is the church? What is the church? The church is a group of believers, first and foremost, who gather and assemble to fellowship, to learn from teaching. In this case, it was the apostles' direct teaching. Now we have the apostles' teaching written down, right? And so we have, we have teaching from the apostles' teaching, which is the inspired word of God. Ultimately, that is the aim of the church. It's that fellowship it's to break bread together, which is both fellowship and also communion. It's to pray with one another and ultimately to devote themselves to each other. Education is a huge part of that. So where does youth ministry fall into that? Is this a case of, for integration? Just everyone should be learning the same thing because this is, this is the model of the early church. Um, no, uh, because there are also opportunities within the context of the church, to have more specific discipleship moments. So we look at what is the purpose of the church, the fellowship and and teaching of, of, of the people, of God's people who have been saved, and how does that happen? Uh, it through, excuse me, it's the fellowship of, of God's people. How does that happen through the teaching and discipleship of his people? And, and how can you do that? Well, in many churches, you have to do that in smaller groups. So you have fellowship groups. Our church has a number, a variety of fellowship groups. Sometimes they target a certain demographic. Sometimes they just 
happened to be friends before they got saved, and they're all kind of together, and uh, there's groups, and you do that on a smaller level because discipleship often happens in small groups or one-on-one basis. So youth ministry is simply giving you an opportunity, giving the church an opportunity to do discipleship at a smaller level with people very directed with people who need that discipleship. It's, I think it's a great blessing. It's why I've been part of it. It's why I, uh, I represent it to our board of elders, who, by the way, as you can tell, are willing to invest quite a bit in the ministry of our youth. And, um, and it's an extraordinary blessing, as you know. I'm in many ways preaching to the choir. So teaching and discipleship happen at every level within the church, and youth ministry is part of that. Your aim is teaching and discipleship. As a youth ministry leader, your aim is teaching and discipleship. There's one thing that is a little bit different about youth ministry than you might say about what we see here in the early church or what we see in the general church, and that is that you have people in youth, 18 and below, who come to church but are not believers. So that's different typically than the adults, right? Adults might come if they're seeking. They certainly come if they have been saved. But what you can be sure of is because adults bring their families to church, you have a captive audience of people that you can evangelize to. And so where, where a fellowship group, an adult fellowship group, or the main general assembly of a church would differ slightly from... Uh, from youth ministry or even children's ministry, there is a lot more uh, gospel input. What is the gospel? How do I, what do I do to be saved? What, how do I know I'm saved? Those sorts of questions are worked out through the teaching and discipleship of youth ministry. So if you were asked, why are you in youth ministry? What is your aim? I would say your aim is to teach, disciple, and evangelize. And it's helpful to have what the Bible says about that. And of course, the, 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 the Bible is explicit about evangelism. It's in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. It's important for you to be, be concise about what your aim is because there is so much noise in youth ministry these days. It's, it's, so, it's so entertainment-driven. And that's not bad. We do a lot of entertaining at this camp. We do a lot of, of entertaining in our youth group. Uh, which we call 180, uh, back at Grace. Plenty of room for that. That makes it fun. That's great. But that is not our aim. If someone walks out of the basement, which is the part of the church that we meet in on Sunday mornings, and says, uh, that was the most entertaining thing I've done all week, we have failed. We have completely failed. And I'm so thankful to partner with a man like Josh Petrus, who gets that. He's fun. You can tell he is a lot of fun. But he knows that at the end of the day, if he is not instructing his people, if he is not discipling and shepherding his flock in that way, and if he is not evangelizing the lost through everything that he does in the programmatics of that youth ministry department, then we have failed. We have not achieved what the Lord has set out for us to do as part of the church. Uh, So... Youth ministry may not be explicit in the Bible, but what you do in youth ministry absolutely is, and it's critical. It's critical. Uh, It's critical for me. I think part of the reason, besides 
meeting my wife through youth ministry, uh, both Jenny and I were saved in high school as a result of, of, of a youth ministry experience that we had. Um, mine was just through ongoing discipleship and mentorship from, uh, from my youth pastor at the time, who really came alongside my parents, who are believers, to help me uh, understand what it was that, that I was rebelling against because I didn't think I was. Uh, for Jenny, she, she had a friend who invited her to youth group. Again, you got this captive audience. She was um, raised in the Catholic church. And when she heard the message that was being taught, so through the teaching of that youth group, she was saved and recognized that what she had been learning was a works-based um, um, gospel that did not, uh, she did not find joy in and certainly ultimately did not save her. It was only the message of salvation from the Bible that did. And so youth ministry is close to our hearts and potentially close to many of yours because it is really a moment where the Lord often uses, there's so much change going on in a teenage life. That's the moment the Lord really uses to have them uh, do some business with him. And so what a great moment in time for you all to come alongside those teenagers um, to be effective in the work that he's doing. So with, a, with an understanding and that foundation of what we aim to do in youth ministry, let's take a look at 1 Timothy 4. So 1 Timothy, obviously the first of two letters um, that Paul wrote to Timothy. Um, and Timothy had been given a, a pastoral role uh, in Ephesus, which we, we know was a, a, a church that was very close to Paul's heart. And so he cared deeply about um, Timothy because they were friends and also his ministry there because he loved that church. And so we, we often refer to, um, to this epistle and others, the other uh, letter to Timothy and, and also Titus is the pastoral epistles because he does a lot of talking about what ministry ought to look like. And uh, don't let that word, by the way, if, if you heard that term, make you think that this epistle is only for pastors. Uh, spiritual leaders in the church have a pastoral responsibility. You are shepherds. Shepherds of, if you're a parent, of, of, of the flock you've been given in your household. If you're a small group leader, of that flock. If you're a youth pastor, you know your flock. And, and so there is a spiritual leadership component to your Christian life that is that, that should resonate with you in any of the pastoral epistles. So I just want to make sure that there's no um, confusion about that because Paul gives great advice on how to be effective in that work. So 1 Timothy 4, and I'm just going to read uh, 1 through 11. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the uh, insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving from those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. If you put these things before the brothers you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed, having nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. 
Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise to the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe." This is a bit of a compare and contrast. Verses one through five uh, describe basically a false teacher, someone who is deceiving, uh, who is teaching what the demons would teach to deceive, who is insincere, who is a liar. And sometimes, as we know, and there's there's much more that addresses false teaching in Scripture, uh, it it can be very dangerous because it can be very uh, conniving and deceitful. But also, sometimes false teachers are unaware that they're being false teachers. They're unaware that their consciences are seared. They don't realize that what they are, are, are spewing out is false doctrine that can mis- mislead an entire population. It's a caution. Paul puts it in here as a caution. Caution to Timothy not, not to be careful about what he says, but also a caution to Timothy to be careful about who he puts in leadership roles and in his church, that Ephesus isn't then misled by these false teachers. And he gives some examples, like they forbid marriage. And I'm sure that they had great ideas about why forbid marriage. And they could, they could quote Paul on things he'd say about marriage. But ultimately, he, Paul calls out that that wasn't the right motivation. It was wrong teaching. And so he, he sets it up here first to say, this is what you don't want to be as a teacher. And, 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 and Scripture would confirm here that they're not, ultimately, they're not believers. They're not truly saved. And then he says, but then there's this good servant of Jesus Christ. And I think the reason why you're sitting in front of me is because you all in earnest want to be called good servants of Jesus Christ in the work that you do. And we pray for you all often. We pray for the churches that we know are coming to Regen months before because we know you're doing work that leads up to this time. And this is a year-round commitment. And it's exhausting. And it's so satisfying when you think that it is a way for you to live out the example of a good servant, Jesus Christ. So let's look at that. We're going to focus on three characteristics that I think come out of this this piece of scripture regarding a good servant of Jesus Christ. And the first is in verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. So, by the way, when he says, when you put these things before the brothers, he's saying when you're discerning, when you highlight where there's false doctrine, when you're discerning about scripture, when you put these things before, then, you're, then you are a good servant of Jesus Christ, being trained in the words of faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. So you can only be discerning because you've been trained in good doctrine. And you can only be trained in good doctrine if you love God's word. So the first point is, um, you could say be trained in God's word or love God's word. Be trained in God's word or love God's word. Um, this, 
isn't a passive relationship with, the, with Scripture. Being trained is an active word. It requires significant effort, right? So if you're training for a marathon, you're, you, you train for months to do that one event, climbing a mountain, Mount Everest. You're training for potentially a year or more to do that. Come a doctor or some, uh, some other uh, uh, discipline that requires significant training, uh, there's even milestones you need to make to make sure that you're trained effectively. Better put, anything worth doing it requires training. Anything worth doing requires training. If Olympians train for years and years to do a track and field event where they run down a uh, hundred yards and then jump into a sand pit, then we, who are doing the eternal work of the gospel, should probably take serious the training required to do that. And youth ministry is fun. I have to admit, when I signed up for my first, first counselor, like youth camp counselor job, and I was 17, and I took a bunch of high schoolers to summer camp for a week, I did not know the Bible. I didn't know enough to be helpful, even to a student who said, what must I do to be saved? And I pray often that the Lord redeemed that time, that I was at least an encouragement to them, and eventually they got their answer. But I knew, even when I was there, that I didn't have it. And over time, I found that the only effective way to become better at that is to know God's word better. And there's still, these students stump me. I I had one this morning. I was like, I don't know the answer to that question. how did you think of that question? But there's like questions come up. So, so the goal, the aim is not to have every answer. The aim is to be trained, to have a base, basic training, to know what are the basic things that come up. And so youth pastors, take time with your staff. Make sure that those basics are covered and not just assumed. Uh, and, get, and make sure that you're doing it regularly. You know, we have, uh, we have staff meetings every two weeks uh, in our youth group. And once a month, so every other staff meeting, is really a training and equipping time. Um, so that you sit down and say, okay, uh, Josh does this thing uh, where he gives a, a kind of an example of something that might come up in a small group. How do you address it? How do you address it biblically? And then we share as a staff because training can happen together. So training, being trained up in God's word is not an individual task. It's a team effort too, right? You get preached at, that's part of training. You have personal Bible study, that's part of training. You have group discussions about whatever comes up in your small groups, that's part of training. Just make sure you're being purposeful in your training. We have a training manual. It's the best training manual for any sport you could play. And it's thorough. It answers every question. It is the best guide ever assembled. So make sure you use it. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed, profitable for teaching, something that you need to do regularly in your role. Reproof and correction, also something you need to do probably fairly regularly in your role, and for training in righteousness. Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knew that Scripture would continue to be available to believers. And here it is. The words that he wrote, that those that went before him wrote, are still available. He knew that as he was informed by 
our Holy Father, that scripture would be available. And so he said, make sure that you're, you're looking at scripture regularly and that you're using it to get yourself set up for ministry. So questions I would ask, do you know God's word as well as you think you ought? Do you long to know it better? Do you have an affection for his word? Do you see it as your training manual for ministry? Do you see that, that you're not just doing this for your own personal holiness, which we'll talk about in a moment, but you're actually looking at Scripture because you, as you study something that may not be entirely relevant to you, it may come up one day. And so being an expert on the Scripture that you're reading, using cross-references and making sure that you know, having Scripture memorized, because often things come up and you don't have your Bible available or it's hard to look it up or where's that passage? Have some key scripture memorized. So be trained in God's word. The second in verse seven says, having nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. There's a lot of distraction in life. I called it noise. There's a lot of noise, uh, especially in, in the lives of students. Uh, they, they're creating their own noise and drama. They're, uh, they have inputs of extraordinary noise in their social media feeds. Uh, and they, they, they like to broadcast the noise. You know, you walk into youth ministry department on a Wednesday evening, if that's when you meet, and there's most of what's going on is uh, they're talking about things that might qualify as silly. There's a lot that could be noise, but what you have to remember is your priority is on training them up in righteousness so that they understand how to discern that noise. And by the way, the most effective way to do that is to bring them to Scripture that they can, they can read on their own personal time, and then you could talk to them about that, um, not to give them the answer. So, uh, so that's why I suggested like the case for Christ really helps build an argument that you can walk someone through so that they can find the answers. Teenagers are adults in their minds. They have the ability to logic and reason, unlike a child, right? The difference is that during adolescence, they develop a deeper ability to think. Many of them are smarter than any of us. And so give them the opportunity to be discerning, but call out what's silly. Hey, that's like, you're going off, off in left field. Let's, let's redirect you. Or let me give you some scripture that you can read to help you that, with that. And then, of course, there's the silliness of just gossip and drama and whatever else comes up in regular conversations. And you're not going to rid your student ministry of that. I'm not advocating that. That is just part of human life, walking through life. Um, but does it, does it take over your small group? Do you spend the first 15 minutes talking about ladies' dress and attire, hair and nails, that sort of thing, that just is cutting into the time that you could be diving into Scripture because you only get however much time you do each week? Uh, guys, how much time is spent talking about sports or video games or multiplayer, whatever it is, that really you can, you as the leader can help redirect 
and redirect it purposefully. Redirect it in a way that says, you know, I don't see a lot of profit from, from that. Not judging, I just haven't seen a lot of profit for that, but can I tell you what's profitable? That message we just heard on Sunday, and let's talk about it. Redirecting it purposefully. Being focused on the eternal is what I call it. So that would be the second point, being focused on the eternal. And so this is where it's going to get a little personal. This, this means that um, you have to be discerning in your own life. So I had a guy come up to me at a staff meeting or something, and he goes, all of my students say that they are so tired. And he's like, I don't get it. All they have to do is go to school, and sometimes they have sports or whatever. But like, like every time, it's like, oh, I'm so tired. Oh, I can barely keep my eyes open during small group or... You know, now that's probably happening a lot this week, but let's just kind of say, like, you know, in normal circumstances. And he was really frustrated about, like, that's all we talk about is how tired they are. Isn't there anything else? What should I say to redirect that? So um, it wasn't too long after that that I saw this person on a Sunday morning and I said, How are you doing? And he said, I am so tired. And in the moment, I was like, I'm going to give him space. But I circled back with him later, and I said, hey, you're, you were demonstrating a lot of frustration about your students who always talk to you about how tired you are. And the first thing you told me was how tired you were. And I'm wondering if perhaps they're learning something from you. So this is also just a kind of a, an action item from this is be discerning in your own heart. What's, what's going on in your priorities that could be maybe feeding the priorities uh, toward it, irreverent or silly myths? For guys, I'll just call out that coarse joking is a dangerous thing in youth ministry. And I know it's tempta- there's temptation because you want to laugh with the guys. Uh, but I'll, I'll just call out that um, that's where perversion starts is in course joking. It's very explicit in scripture. Um, do your best to, uh, to, to not to laugh. There's a, a guy, he's, he's in the audience who um, has uh, once called me out for making an off-color joke, I will admit. Um, and he is so good at making sure that his students um, when the, it is identified when they make a joke that is, that is not appropriate. And, and it's all in the name of what is biblical manhood? It is not making potty jokes. That is not biblical manhood. Ladies, I know the same happens. I haven't been as, as prone to it. <laughs> um, but that's, you know, it's, it's something that you really need to be aware of. So we've got the word. We've got keeping your focus on eternity. And now we turn to verses 8 and 9. And 8 and 9, I would say, if you were coming to, to, to find a silver bullet to know what the secret is behind the most successful youth ministers, it is this. It starts in actually verse 7. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. 
as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. This is the, the answer that you came for. What is the secret sauce? And I'm sorry if it disappoints you that it's not some, uh, something you've never heard before, but it's actually something that you hear all the time. Pursuing personal holiness. Even in the last month, uh, a, very, a pastor who's very close to our church and, uh, and to me uh, fell because he was not pursuing personal holiness. You ha- we, ha- we hear these stories constantly. It's, it's inundated, right? And social media makes these stories even um, more uh, far-reaching, and th- but we also get a little bit numb to the fact of what, that what's going on in our society, regardless of the Me Too movement, is there is not a pursuit of personal holiness. There's a pursuit of doing things that could make you holy or doing things that make you look holy, but not a pursuit of personal holiness. Verse 8 says, Godliness is of value in every way. I recently had a conversation with somebody, and someone asked me, so why is it that your faith is so important to you? Why is is that something that you spend so much time doing? This is at work. And and I said, essentially, godliness is a value in in every way. I believe that pursuing personal holiness makes you more effective, certainly as a parent, definitely as a worker, and most assuredly as a youth minister, as a youth leader. Personal holiness is a value in every way. It makes you a better friend. It makes you even a better customer, right? Think about the times when you have not been in your best place in terms of pursuing holiness, and was that one of the times when you chewed somebody out for giving you the wrong drink at Starbucks? Personal holiness and godliness is a value in every way. And then there's emphasis on that note, by the way, in verse 9. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. This is a phrase Paul uses a couple of other times to really put an, an exclamation mark on what he's trying to say there. So he is trying to get even more, get our attention about the value of pursuing godliness. So, if you want to completely undermine your ministry, then be a hypocrite. Tell your students they should be promoting, they should be pursuing personal holiness, but then you yourself don't. Or you think, I've done enough to get myself here, this is good. And you become kind of more, uh, you, 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 you put it on cruise control in your own life and say, as long as I stay here, um, here's, here's, a, here's a temptation in youth ministry you can very easily fall into the trap of comparing yourself and your own godliness to the godliness of teenagers. I just said that, but think about how easy that is to do. It sounds crazy that we would say, that we would look at the teenagers and make ourselves feel like, oh yeah, well, I'm not doing that bad because they're over there doing that. 
it's really easy to do. But your comparison is not to a teenager. It's to Christ. And your aim is to be more like him, not less like a teenager. And so personal holiness. Um, And by the way, some students are trying to catch you in your own hypocrisy. And that's tough. We can't be perfect and, and, when the, and that, when that happens, and by the way, we're, every one of us is a hypocrite in this room based on something we've done in the last three days because we've all sinned. And we're telling them they've got to pursue holiness. And in that case, please, part of godliness is humility. If you are asked about something, if you're asked about who knows what it is, a social media post, something you said to somebody, when you complained about something, say, you know what? That, that wasn't right. That's not godly. That's, that's a way for you to, to disciple the person who's asking that question. So it's on the verge of rude for them to ask the question. Sometimes it's, it's not for the best, from the best motivation, but sometimes it also is. Just they want to ask. They're trying to figure out. They, they're told that you are an example to emulate. Should I be following you even in that? It's a valid question. So when you're called out on it, be honest. First Peter uh, 1, 13 through, we'll just turn there really quick. First Peter 1. First Peter um, has become close to my heart from some recent study and teaching I've done. Um, and really understanding what the people, that the, the original audience of, of, of this letter was. They were persecuted under Nero. They were, they were rough circumstances. Um, and so what, what Peter's trying to do is encourage them, but also set a standard for how they ought to be living. Uh, because in a time of persecution, the best way, the best testimony is to be set apart in the way that you behave. Right. So you're getting... You know, they were getting burned at the stake. Um, they were finding joy in those trials. And it wasn't a superficial joy. It was a, it was a clear, God-centered joy. So in 1 Peter 1.13, um, he st- kind of starts, um, he encourages his readers by first saying, like, we've got Christ. And then he says, therefore, right, since we have Christ, preparing your minds for action— being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, as quote from Leviticus 11, you shall be holy for I am holy. It's really simple. The gospel's simple, which is great. It, gives it, it makes it easy for us to, uh, to teach. We don't have to be uh, of high intellect, really, to do this work. We just need to be holy, and we need to be pursuing that holiness. Are you pursuing holiness in a way that people would be captivated by it? Uh, and here's Mythbuster time. Uh, high school students are more captivated by godly leaders than they are by cool leaders. And there's such a temptation, use that word a lot, that term a lot, but there is, you know, I, um, 
there's such a temptation to be that cool guy, or that, that lady that everyone wants to be like or look like. And, and that's, that's, that's the world saying this is what, you know, that, that's, that's Seventeen Magazine trying to influence your thinking about what is aspirational to a teenager. Because we were all created by the same God, and we are wired to be compelled by godliness, even in our rejection of him. There is something compelling about a godly person, even to the unbeliever. And so, are you wanting to be compelling for your godliness, or are you wanting to be compelling for your witty joke or your cool skateboard trick? There's someone who can, who's both godly and cool and on our youth group staff. He's in this room. I've talked to him. It's great to be both godly and cool, but not all of us can. So I'm going to take godliness over coolness. I have a dad who is a pretty cool guy. He's also a, a godly guy. And I've spent a lot of time learning from him, seeking to be more like him. And my friends really enjoy meeting him. And they don't, we don't go to the same church. And so um, it's not often that people from, from different pockets of my life get, get to meet my dad. Um, but they often say, oh, now I get it. Oh, yeah, and they even, you know, there's, there's a lot of things. Even our, some of our mannerisms are similar. Wouldn't it be great if a student in your small group finally met the Lord and said, now I get it. Now I know because I watched my leader that whole time, and he told me who God was, and he showed me who God was. And now I know because I know that Father. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to you for who you are. We are so grateful to you that because of your word and the spirit that you have sent, you found it fitting to save us, to bring us into your family, and then to teach us that we are saved to serve. And I thank you for the servants in this room the men and women, the aspiring teenagers who all seek to bring others to Christ through discipleship and youth ministry. May their teaching be effective. May their lives point to the future glory that is in heaven for us. And may everything they're about be godly. In Jesus' name, amen.